0: We were looking at the abuse he was receiving at the hands of King Saul. And so we turn to Psalm 142 this week, and we're going to look at the theme of abandonment. How does David process his own feelings of abandonment? He doesn't feel like anyone cares for him. You know, it's one thing to be pursued, persecuted, abused, attacked. And it's another thing altogether to do that alone and to feel like you have no one around you who cares. This is how David feels. He expresses it in the middle of the psalm. He says, look to the right and see. There is no one who takes notice of me. No one cares for my soul. He feels alone. He feels uncared for. He feels abandoned. He feels even betrayed. At the 2000 Grammys, Uh, singer and artist Demi, Demi Lovato took the stage for the first time in over 18 months. She performed her song, Anyone, which is an emotional and urgent cry from the heart, which was written hours before she was hospitalized for a drug overdose. Here's what she sang on the Grammy stage in 2020. I tried to talk to my piano. I tried to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confided into alcohol. I tried and I tried and I tried some more. Told secrets till my voice was sore. Tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. A hundred million stories, a hundred million songs. I feel stupid when I sing. Nobody's listening to me. Nobody's listening. I talk to shooting stars, but they always get it wrong. I feel stupid when I pray, so why am I praying anyway if nobody's listening? Anyone? Please send anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. I used to crave the world's attention. I think I cried too many times. I just need some more affection, anything to get me by. Ever been there? Ever been in the place where you feel like you're suffering alone, where you feel like no one notices, no one even cares? Well, as Lovato was singing in the spotlight about feeling like she was in the dark, She finished singing, and she opened her eyes, and the stunned and tearful crowd rose to its feet in support. The reason they rose, I'm sure, was yes, the performance was emotional, it was gripping, but I'm sure part of it was also recognizing that they, too, stood in solidarity with Demi because we all share with her at times in feeling the deep longing to know if anyone understands or hears or cares about us. Most of us know at some level what it's like to feel alone, to feel weak, to feel invisible. Demi Lovato's not the only one. And we know that confiding in others and sometimes writing out our intimate thoughts can be quite healing. It helps us to put it into words and externalize it a little bit. Get it out of the internal world, which can be so confusing, and, and put it in a more physical form. When we give personal voice to our emotions and organize them in this way, it helps us make sense of the hurt. Demi Lovato was doing it in a song at the Grammys. David was doing it in a cave in Psalm 142. But if we're honest, we share some of Lovato's doubts about the results that she even expresses in the song. Ultimately, she felt and knew that this form of self-expression itself would be empty and would bring her up short of the heartache, no matter how important it feels to her at the time, or how others might sincerely desire to help her. The irony was that her words and the venue revealed that she did know somebody was listening. Not only was she singing before nearly 19 million viewers who were watching her, but she repeatedly asked the Lord to send someone to her. But sadly, in her song, she doesn't quite go far enough. We need more than anyone. We need someone with a capital S. So what do you do when you're in that state, when you're feeling like no one cares, that no one's listening, no one notices you? Well, you could write a song like Demi. You could write a psalm like David, or you could just do what David tells you to do in the psalm which is where we're going to head this morning. How does he model for us how to approach this feeling that nobody cares? What do you do? What are you going to do the next time you wake up? Maybe it's this morning. Maybe you're here sitting right now, or maybe it's not your experience right now. But it will come when you feel alone, when you feel like no one cares, when you feel like no one's paying attention to you. Kids, what are you going to do when you feel that way as you grow up, which is a frequent experience in childhood and adolescence, isn't it? Nobody pays attention to me. Nobody cares. People are my friends one minute, then they're me, then they choose another friend. I can't, nobody knows what's going on. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to process that? Because you're going to process it. You're going to stuff it, or you're going to try to get out of it, or busy yourself to get rid of it. That's not helpful. But David would tell you this morning, here's how you handle that. So let's all enter into what David is experiencing here in hopes of learning some of the lessons he wants to teach us. There are three lessons he wants to teach us this morning about what to do when no one cares. First of all, you have to identify the painful predicament you're in. You need to name it. Name the painful predicament. Now, the background of Psalm 142 is 1 Samuel chapters 22 to 24. Saul is still in pursuit of David, and he's finally tracked him down. He knows his whereabouts. David likely wrote this psalm knowing that Saul was looking for him and closing in on him. He writes in verse 2 of the trouble that he is experiencing, and he spells it out in verse 3. Here's the way David verbalizes it and names it. He says, in the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. In verse 6 and 7, he speaks of being persecuted and feels like he has been put in prison. Now, in a similar description to what we saw last week, David again describes his emotional state, how all this trapping trouble is making him feel. He says in verse 6, I am brought very low. He says in verse 3, my spirit faints within me. When he says that his spirit is faint, what he means is that he feels both weak and overwhelmed. Frail and enveloped in trouble. And he summarizes his predicament in verse 4 by stating that there is no one who takes notice of me and no one cares for my soul. So it's so important for us to realize that this is normal experience of following God. It's so easy to have the idea that if we love the Lord Jesus and we trust in his grace and we believe the Bible and we know the gospel, we study the scriptures, then these troubles aren't going to come. And then they do. And it can sometimes knock the breath out of us or take us off our feet. And we're lying on our backs and thinking, what in the world just happened to me? God, I'm doing what you ask. See, the very best people, the very finest of believers, may be easily and frequently brought into circumstances of overwhelming grief and need. And this can come upon us in the most unexpected ways. In fact, many, many, maybe all, but I know many in our congregation, Godly people. I I, I mean, I talk to a lot of believers at different times outside of our church, and, and I hear similar stories, but the levels and the depth of suffering that this congregation has experienced is huge. Big things. Big, big things. Burying children at young ages, all kinds of young ages. Losing loved ones in radical ways. Difficulties and and prolonged physical suffering and illness. But think of David's situation. He's in a cave now, but not many weeks before, he was in the palace. He's gone from easy street to no street. (laughs) He looks out that cave and all he probably sees is dirt. He's been called from herding sheep and ended up in a situation where he defeated Israel's greatest enemy, Goliath. He was the toast of the town. He was invited into the court. He became best friends with the heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan. How in the world could anyone have anticipated David going from that to this? But there he is. You might think of David's response. might imagine him saying something like this. You know, Lord, all I did was obey you. All I did was come out and fight Goliath. I didn't want to be king because of that. All I did was encourage your people against their enemies. All I did was try to go into the court of Saul and soothe his crazy spells. And here I am in a cave because he wants to kill me. What do I do? What did I do? What did I do? Why is this happening to me? You ever find yourself an experience like that? Maybe you're in it now. Well, so was David. And the Lord heard and helped him, and he will hear and help you and come to all of you in your distress as well with like faith when you take yourself to the throne of grace. But maybe you're not here. Maybe you're here this morning, and you don't feel this way at all. You do not share in David's lament at this time. There are many who care for your soul, and you're not presently feeling very low. So what should you do when you read psalms like this? And it doesn't represent your present experience. John Piper offers these helpful words of counsel. He says, first of all, realize that somewhere in the world there are Christians who right now are in this situation. Pray with them and for them. Don't read your Psalms or read your Bible and think, well, that doesn't apply to me. Think of who it does apply to and pray for them. It should often come to our minds, if this doesn't apply to me, it applies to somebody. And we should be praying that for them, not just the Christians in the world, but Christians even in our own congregation. And realize, secondly, that you will be in this situation sooner or later and build this pattern of prayer into your life as preparation for it. So you have the rhythm already established when the hard times come because you've been praying for other people. Also, thirdly, get to know God by way of the godly and what they say to him and about him in such times. And I can think of no better way to do that than read the Psalms regularly. And fourthly, give thanks for the relative peace and joy that you have in this fragile season. It is a gift from God, and we should thank God for it. But for those of us who are in this situation, who do feel abandoned and alone, or will be, if the Lord wills, soon or later, how should we respond? Well, we need to acknowledge the painful predicament that we're in first. Don't mask it, don't cover it up, don't stuff it. Speak to the Lord about what it is And how you feel. Secondly, we need pleading prayer. We need pleading prayer. Not just a painful predicament, but a pleading prayer. When our spirit faints within us feeling weak and when we feel overwhelmed, what do we do? Well, there's lots of different ways to handle that, isn't there? We have temporary solutions. You can binge watch something. Uh, You can self-medicate your heartache. Get some food. Um, you can look, uh, to something, some other form of pleasure, or you can find light and hope and confidence. (laughs) I would prefer that. I'd prefer to find light and hope and confidence at the end of it, and not just a temporary sedative that returns me to a painful normality. David wrote eight Psalms about this experience during this time in first Samuel eight that we know of. You think that got under his skin, what was going on in his life? He didn't write about any event more than he wrote about this event. Not even Absalom. And he was his flesh and blood. He wrote longer psalms about that. (laughs) But he didn't write as many. The father of his best friend was bent on destroying him. And that really bothered him. It bothered me. A lot. He's tracking him down like a dog in the wilderness, left him hiding in caves and far from his home and outlawed in his own land. And David, repeatedly, deeply troubled, wrote Psalm 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 after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm about this experience. Psalm 34 is about it. Psalm 57 is about it. Psalm 59 is about it. Psalm 142, plus three other psalms that we're going to consider in the coming weeks. 52, 54, and 63. Eight psalms all arise from the experience of Saul's unjust persecution of David. And they surfaced many things in David. Not just one emotion, not just one response. But clearly this got under his skin and was deep down in his soul. And the Lord told David... Write a psalm about it. 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 Write Write another psalm. Write another one. And we are at the fifth one right here in Psalm 142. Beloved, there is absolutely no possibility of passing safely and comfortably through this world without prayer. Prayer is writing our own psalms about things. David over and over finds himself in circumstances where he admits, as he does in this psalm, that there is no other hope but in the Lord. He's in the situation where he is because of the Lord, and he knows his only deliverance can come from the Lord, and the only way to live is prayerful dependence upon the Lord. But the flip side of that's also true. There can be no situation that we face, however distressing, however perilous, however disheartening, however disgraceful, however difficult, in which our faith will not derive comfort by going to God in prayer. See, David uses many verbs to describe his response to his feelings here in the psalm. But they're all directed to one place. In verse 1, David cries out to the Lord. Verse 5, I cry out to you, O Lord. He asks for God to attend to his cry in verse 6. David is not casually going to God and throwing up a few prayers. He's screaming out to God in desperation again and again. He pleads for mercy, verse 1, from the Lord. In verse 2, he pours out his complaint to God. The word for complaint here carries with it the idea of murmuring or even babbling. He can't even get the words out. It expresses his deep anguish that can barely be expressed. Again, in verse 2, he tells his trouble before the Lord. The word for trouble carries with it the idea of an adversary or a rival or an enemy. Someone who's causing a situation of difficulty, of anxiety, of distress on us. And David prayed out loud. He cried out loud. He pled out loud. He complained out loud to the Lord. This is a cry for help, dear ones. It is a shriek. From someone in distress. David's primal cry is a plea for mercy. It's a desperate call for help. David is asking God to stoop down and listen to him and help him, and he asks God to deliver him from his persecutors and bring him out of this prison, verses 6 and 7. Now, dear ones, do we not need the Lord in similar ways to bring us out of our own prisons that we feel trapped in at times? Scotty Smith is one of my favorite uh, writers, and he he writes a daily prayer for the Gospel Coalition, which I try to read almost every morning. Um, but he beautifully talked about this very idea of the Lord rescuing us and delivering us out of our prisons, like David says in verse 7, um, in the following way, and I want to share with you some of Scotty's words. He says, Dear Jesus, when King David prayed for freedom from his prison, he wasn't behind iron bars. He was hiding in a cave. It's obvious he felt pursued, trapped, and alone. It's also obvious he enjoyed great freedom to own his desperation and cry for mercy. Because of your great love for us, I choose the same path today. By your word, grace, and spirit, you've already set me free from many slavish imprisonments, the fear of dying, for you robbed the grave of its victory through your resurrection, the fear of judgment. For you were condemned in our place upon the cross. The tyranny of false gospels for only your work and righteousness make us acceptable to God. The myth of autonomy for you alone are the sovereign Lord and the king of kings. I'm a mere man, beloved, but not in control of my world or my future. How I praise and adore you for these great freedoms. But there are other imprisonments for which I long to be delivered as well. Jesus, continue to set me free from vain regrets. Those haunting memories of what could have been and should have been. We want to learn from the past but not be enslaved to our past. Bring the power of the gospel to bear upon our memory bank of shame. You are the redeemer of our stories, not the reminder of our failures. Set me free from the power of old wounds. Denial hasn't worked very well. Medicating only provides us with temporary relief. Some damage to our hearts will only be fully healed by your second coming. We understand that. But until then, please give us the grace we need to get unstuck. Our name is beloved, not victim. I want my justification in you to define me much more than my victimization in life. We all experience loss, betrayal, great hurt, and some of these things will only be fully healed by your second coming. Let me be okay with that, even as I trust you to use my pain for the benefit of others. Your name is healer. Set me free to love all kinds of people, not just those of my own tribe, those who share my prejudices, and those who simply make me feel good about me. Give me a greater love for the least and the lost, the people all around me who don't care how much I know. They just need someone to care. Your name is Good Shepherd. Set me free to love well in messy, broken relationships with courage and kindness. Set me free to live as an ambassador of reconciliation, a spirit-filled peacemaker, a conduit of your restorative grace. Your name is Prince of Peace, Lord Jesus. Continue to bring me out of all kinds of prisons that I might give thanks to your name. Add your own. Add your own. The prisons that the Lord, we are pleading for him to deliver us from. So those are two aspects of how David deals with feeling like no one cares for his soul. He names his painful predicament and he pleads with the Lord in prayer. But thirdly, he recognizes a present person. He recognizes a present person. So where does David find any hope? Where does he look for light in the darkness, for hope in the midst of distress? Well, You know the answer. It's the Lord himself. Now, he does that in three distinct ways, which I think are instructive for us. And I want to spend the rest of our sermon talking about these three ways that David recognizes God as his hope and his help presently. First of all, because of who God is, he reminds himself of who God is. Even as he complains, even as he laments, he refuses to, To let his perception ultimately define reality. Isn't that an important lesson for us in a subjective culture that pushes us inside to let our feelings define what real is? Dear ones, we can be just as guilty of that. Don't think that's something that unbelievers do. That's something that our culture conditions you to do and me to do. How much during the day are you letting your life be defined by how you feel? Behold, your discipleship in America. Pushing you inside of yourself to figure it all out. So we say things like, no refuge remains for me. Because we're being governed by how we feel. But just a few verses later, what does David say? You are my refuge. So David, do you have a refuge or not? David would say, No and yes. Not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. David may have no reliable human help or support, and you may not either. If you're a member of this church, you don't, so stop telling yourself those lies. We're committed to loving each other, aren't we? Didn't we make a covenant in that regard? I hope you take your vows seriously when you pledged yourself to love your brothers and sisters in the church in sickness and in health and notice whether or not people are here or not or alone or not or sitting by themselves or not around you so that you can engage them after the service. I hope you're not so preoccupied with everything that's going on in your life. You just got to hit the door. The most important ministry happens five minutes after the service ends or five minutes before it sometimes. If you got to run, no guilt. But if you cannot make it a habit, that's great. David may have no reliable human support, but his hope and his confidence are rooted in who God is for him. I love the great hymn, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul. The hymn writer writes, Dear Refuge of My Weary Soul, on thee when sorrows rise, on thee when waves of trouble roll, my fainting hope relies. To thee I tell each rising grief. For thou alone canst heal. Thy word can bring a sweet relief for every pain I feel. But oh, when gloomy doubts prevail, I fear to call thee mine. The springs of comfort seem to fail and all my hopes decline. Yet gracious God, where shall I flee? Thou art my only trust and still my soul would cleave to thee, though prostrate in the dust. Hast thou not bid me seek thy face and shall I seek in vain? And can the ear of sovereign grace be deaf when I complain? No, still the ear of sovereign grace attends the mourner's prayer. Oh, may I ever find access to breathe my sorrows there. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here, let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will and wait beneath thy feet. That's what David does. That's what we must do. David says, you are my portion in the land of the living. David is acknowledging that the Lord is his prize. And if the Lord is his prize... If he's the portion that we want, if he's what we're in it for in life, then no matter our circumstances, no one can take that away. Nobody. They can take our families, they can take our reputation, they can take your marriage, they can take your job, they can take all your hopes, all your dreams, but they can't take your Jesus. They can't take your treasure, they can't take your prize. They can't take your portion. They can't take your heavenly father from you. If Jesus is your treasure, if God is your desire, if the living God is your prize, no one can can take that from you. And David's saying this in part to let us know that he's not just using God as a divine bellhop to get him out of trouble. Ding dong. God, I need your help again. Lord, quick, Come here. Get me out of this mess. He's wanting to make it clear. Yes, I'm coming to you, Lord. Yes, I'm asking for help. But understand this. You're what I really want at the end of the day. I'm not using you to get something better. You are the something better. I don't want out of this predicament, or I, sorry, I do want out of this predicament, but I want you more than getting out of this predicament. And you know, if we'll approach our predicaments that way, the Lord will become more precious to us, and our predicaments will become opportunities for the promotion of real spiritual growth because we're prizing the Lord. So David points us to his prize in verse 5 as he prays for the Lord to protect him. He says, you're my portion, Lord. You're what I care about. You're more than anything else. You're number one in my heart. You're the thing that I want above everything else, Lord. Just you. That's what I want. Just you. Just you. So who God is is what is motivating David here as well. But secondly, what God knows. Secondly, David finds confidence in what God knows, specifically how well God knows him. In verse 3, David draws strength in the midst of internal distress and external danger. How? By saying this. You know my way. You know my way. Now, you know my way is not just a statement of God's omniscience. That is his all-knowing. Like, God, you know everything. He's saying you are intimately knowledgeable and connected to my life. You know, the word know in Hebrew is not just about, like, brain knowledge. It's about intimate, deep, personal connection. Adam knew his wife, and she conceived, and she gave birth to. Adam knew his wife. He didn't just talk to her. He had intimate connection to her. It's the kind of knowledge that David expresses elsewhere in Psalm 139. O Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down and are equated with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light is as bright as day for the darkness is as light to you. What's he saying? I can't go anywhere where you're not with me. Even a cave. And he spells out this predicament. As he does so, he, behind it, he recognizes God's pervasive providence. When we feel that no one cares for us, that everyone is against us, you need to know your God and that he knows your way. He knows its past. He knows its present. He knows its future. No enemy can lay a snare for your feet apart from your father's knowledge and will. His providence is all pervasive wherever you are. You can know that God sees and God knows all that you are experiencing, all the internal anguish, all the external dangers. He sees, he knows perfectly inside and out. And if you find yourself in a circumstance in your life when your wisdom is gone, your reason is confounded, it's not, is it not a joy for us to know? Is it not a joy for you to know that God knows? <laughs> that your Lord God, your Heavenly Father knows all mysteries fathoms all depths, knows all hearts, and controls all causes. Our brother Larry even confessed that in his class this morning, that one of his greatest comforts is that reality. And I'm sure it's true for all of us in many ways. Do you have that kind of sense of God's providence in your life? Do you understand that nothing happens by accident? Do you know that you're never the victim of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? That there is no such thing as a surprise phone call? that not a hair can fall from your head apart from the knowledge and will of your heavenly father who loves you and gave his son for you. Does that kind of sense of his providence pervade you in your times of predicament? Let it do so. Thirdly and finally, not only who God is, not only what God knows, but what God says. What God says. David finds confidence, not just in who God is, not just in what God knows, but in what God says in his word. He sees what God has promised, and he says in verse 7, The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. David knows the promises of God, and he trusts that he's going to one day be out of this cave where no one's around him, where no one cares for him, and he's going to be delivered from his enemies, and he's going to be surrounded by God's people, and he's going to be praising God for his goodness to him. This is not just wistful thinking for David. He knows it because God had promised it through the prophet Samuel, and he looks forward to seeing it come to fruition, that he will reign as king over Israel. Now, God did bring an end to David's time in the cave, and he did so in a remarkably wonderful way. And David was vindicated from slander, and he was relieved from the pressure of Saul's persecution. We read about it in 1 Samuel 24. David had fled again from Saul to the caves of Engedi, and Saul takes 3,000 men, and he goes in pursuit of David again. And David was hiding in a cave, and Saul comes in by himself because he needed to use the bathroom. No joke. I love the Bible. I love that it mentions these sorts of things. Saul goes into the cave where David is hiding. He doesn't know David's hiding in there, but he's got to use the bathroom, so he goes near the front of the cave. David's way in the back, but he hears and knows that Saul is there. He doesn't see David in the dark back of the cave, and David is able, though, to see Saul in the light front of the cave. And David actually is able to cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And the men with David wanted him to kill Saul, but David refused to kill Saul. Instead, when Saul left the cave and rejoined his men, David emerges from the cave, and he shows Saul the corner of his robe that he'd cut off. And when Saul is confronted by David's clear evidence in front of his men, Saul confesses the following. He says in 1 Samuel 24, You're more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I've repaid you evil. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Saul then left the cave, went home, leaving David vindicated and in peace for a minute. There was another one, though, who was vindicated in a cave only to be delivered and surrounded by the righteous. Do you know his name? Jesus. The son of David went into a cave after being crucified, buried, and left in the tomb. David was alive in the cave. Christ was dead in one. David was delivered from his enemies. Christ was killed by them. He had a pretty dark day, didn't he? He didn't get to experience the deliverance that David experienced. And he was God's own son. Why does God let that happen to his son? If he didn't, let it happen to David. Does he love David more than he loves Jesus? It would appear so. You'd almost think that, wouldn't you? That was a dark day for his disciples too. They weren't around him after all. But they were still fearful. All their hopes, all their dreams were crushed when Christ was crucified. All their future plans lay buried in that tomb with Jesus. The view from the cave looked pretty bleak that day. But three days later, Jesus rose triumphant from the grave and fulfilled God's plan for David and for all the ages. Isaiah fifty three ten and 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Praise the Lord that Isaiah foresaw the future resurrection of Christ. He says, yes, it was the will of the Lord to crush him because of our transgressions, because of our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. But that is not the end of the story. His soul made an offering for guilt, yes, but he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of God shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. I don't know about you, but I am immensely grateful that the Lord stayed in that cave for me. He stayed in that cave for you if you believe in him. He stayed in that cave bearing your sin, bearing your death so that you never would have to, as we even confessed in the Heidelberg reading this morning. And because he's borne our griefs, because he's carried our sorrows, being made an offering for our guilt under the crushing hand of the Lord, having been raised from the cave, the will of the Lord prospers in the hand of our King Jesus. And what is his will that is prospering? What is his will that will be fulfilled? Well, John 6, 40 tells us, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. If you believe in Him, you're coming out of your cave. You will be buried, you will be placed in a casket, you'll be put in a vault, and you will not stay there. Your soul will be immediately in the presence of Jesus the moment you breathe your last. And on resurrection morning, When Christ returns to split the skies in glory and power, your body will be raised imperishable. Rejoin to your soul, never to die again. If you've looked on the sun, you believed in Him, you have eternal life now. And God will raise you up on the last day, out of the cave, out of the tomb. You will know on that day, as you've never known before, just how bountifully the Lord has dealt with you. You will be able to say, even if your life is hard for the rest of your life, you will get there on that day and you'll say, my, how good I had it. Even suffering believers around the world who are snuffed out three to five martyrs a day, perhaps. Five thousand already this year, I believe. Already gone. Was their life in vain? No, the Lord has dealt bountifully with them. And he will deal bountifully with them still. Though some days, perhaps months, maybe even years, maybe decades... You'll feel like there's no refuge, that no one took notice of you and that no one cared for you. But you will say, along with First Peter 5, cast all your anxieties on the Lord because he cares for you. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the reality that the Psalms paint for us about the painful predicaments that we can experience in this life. Thank you also for the model of prayer that the Psalms give us, the honesty, the vulnerability, the transparency that they give us, the words that they give us when we don't feel like we have words ourselves. We can take the very words that you've inspired back to you, and we can plead your word and your promises in our own pain. We pray that you would help us as a church to care for each other well so that none of us can say for very long, no one cares for me. Because it's not true. We do have people who care for us. And Lord, we pray that you would uh, help us to be those kinds of people when we're not in distress and even when we are in distress, that we would reach out, that we would care, that we would love each other well in the midst of our painful predicament. Lord, we thank you that the righteous do surround us even now that we are part of a family, that we are part of a church, that we are part of a community that has pledged itself to love and serve and care for each other as vows to you. And we are to let our yes be yes and not make excuses. So, Lord, help us to keep our vows to you and to each other as a church. Lord, we also thank you that there's coming a day where we will acknowledge before you that the Lord has dealt bountifully with us, that we will be delivered from our tombs and our caves, that we will be brought into the fullness of eternal life and we will forever be surrounded by the righteous, a multitude that no man can number, reigning forever with our King Jesus, the true son of David, who was buried in a tomb and raised, delivered out into newness and everlasting life. And we who are joined to him will have the same. Thank you for this good news. Thank you for the gospel that is present heaven here in Psalm 142. And thank you that you care for our soul. And thank you that there is a refuge for all of us in you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and respond in worship.